I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. One that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Hello, my name is Demetrius, and you are listening to Spaces Podcast Express. Thank you for coming back, everybody. Today we have a guest, so just as a quick introduction, Niall is a architectural designer, a writer, and entrepreneur, checking in with us from Ireland right now, former senior editor at Art Daily, which most people listening probably know this, <laughs> this website, it's pretty much the world's most visited architecture website, so he's written over 850 articles for Art Daily, so he's very uh, well-versed in writing. And he's on his own now doing a lot of other stuff. So we're checking in with Niall today, see what he's working on. So please help me welcome Niall Patrick Walsh. <laughs> Niall. Hey guys. Niall, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks, thanks for having me. It's uh, good, to, good to be with you. Greeting, greetings from Ireland. <laughs> so how is it there right now? Looks like a <laughs> good, nice day. Uh, well, a nice day is always a relative term here. It's, uh, I mean, it's not raining, so that's kind of cool. Um, it's, um, no, it's, things are good here. Um, as a country, it's starting to open up again. Um, uh, after, after COVID, uh, the bars aren't fully open yet. So that's still regarded as a national crisis, but, um, things are uh, returning to normal, uh, in, in, in daily life and to a certain extent in the industry as well, I think over here. Yeah. And in the UK. Very cool. So outside of your bio, really summarized bio, what do you, uh, you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself, what you have going on? Sure. Uh, so 
my kind of predominant, my primary work, as you said, is as a, an architectural designer for BDP, for Building Design Partnership. Uh, so that still takes up most of my day and all the other kind of uh, shenanigans that I do uh, have always kind of occurred around that space. So whether that was writing for Arc Daily, at the moment I'm involved in a few other ventures. Uh, myself and a colleague run a platform called uh, Bubble Futures Platform. So that's very much about trying to uncover visionary architectural ideas for the future of cities and trying to figure out architecture's connection with global flows, whether that's global flows of food or energy or water and, and, and migration and people and how that can, how architects can bring a unique eye to some of those issues and to some of those uh, paradoxes. Uh, so I'm doing that. And then also kind of as an offspring from my work with Arc Daily, I run a proofreading, editing, writing service for architects for also for, you know, for universities, et cetera. And, working on quite a cool uh, publication at the moment all about the future of the crit. Uh, any architectural students and it probably sends shivers down their spine when I say that word. But uh, looking at alternative forms of, of how architectural education can, can be reviewed and how we can somehow create a, an education system that doesn't uh, exert the, the financial and also the mental health um, issues that I think are too often associated with architectural education. Uh, so we're, we have a group of um, academics and experts from around Europe who are currently helping us out on that. So I'm doing a bit of designing and editing for that. So doing quite a lot of quite a lot of uh, varied varied things in my time, and uh, entering and designing for competitions as well. A, a recent one about urban farming that I was uh, happy to be um, uh, to get first place in. Uh, so I think everything I really do at the moment is about this. Architecture's connection with the wider world, it's, you know, its connection with everyday life and try to, this idea of kind of progress about linking, linking architecture with progress in, in, in agriculture, in, in farming, in, in education and in, in society and in climate. Uh, so that's the long form answer. Yeah, yeah I, I really think that's sort of the future of architecture is not chasing the next contract and throttling down in that capacity and putting a foot into more forward thinking and problem solving uh, big issues in the world. Um, mm. And the more that firms and individual architects do that, I think the better off we are at finding meaningful and uh, possible solutions to a lot of the issues that we're facing. Because a lot of it does revolve around the built environment. 100%. I mean, the um, the firm I work with, uh, we just had our annual meeting, uh, our kind of annual review, and it was a point that was made a lot, is that we, we've always tried to focus on several sectors in several parts of the world, and that the one of the most dangerous things you can do, I think, and a lot of people do do it very successfully, but I always get a bit nervous about the idea of, of zoning in too much on a particular sector or the, indeed a particular industry or a particular line of work because as we've seen over the last couple, few months, um, there doesn't seem to be any such thing as a safe job anymore. Yeah. Um, unless you manufacture vaccines. <laughs> but... Um, so the, and I, I always think it's one of the unique things about architecture and an architectural education is, is what you said, problem solving, where we exert a, a tremendous amount of energy and training, examining whether it's a, a physical site or, or a, a, a financial site or a, um, a biological site, 
any, any sort of site or context and finding ways to just make that better, uh, to improve it, to streamline it, or to rip it up and start again. I think it's a unique thing that architects are taught. And sometimes I wonder, do we just not, do we, do we not reach our full potential uh, when we focus too much on, on a, the design of a, of a medium-sized building? Not to disparage that as a, as a career choice, because it's, uh, it's obviously an important one. But I think there's a lot more to architecture than that. And I think that's been a common theme um, through a lot of the people, even at Arc Daily that I talked to, Carlo Ratti or Liam Young are, are two good examples of that, of people who really believe in this cross-disciplinary um, kind of cross-pollination between architecture, art, science, technology, entertainment, um, all these different spheres that, as you say, all manifest in the built environment. Yeah, definitely. So let's back up a little bit. You mentioned you're clearly a busy guy. <laughs> you mentioned that you have a full-time job, uh, BDP. Yeah. I was curious, were you working there at the same time or at a full-time job while you were still working with Arc Daily? Yes, yes, I was. <laughs> um, to give, I mean, to, to, to I think, I guess to summarize it, I started at Arc Daily when I was in university. And uh, so for a long time, um, you, the, the university schedule gave me the space to uh, to to work at Arc Daily and for not to interfere too much. But uh, yeah, there, there was, a I think, an eight or nine month overlap where I was working full time at BDP and writing with Arc Daily. I mean, I, I was always very grateful to both of those um, places because they were both very flexible. And I think they both saw the advantage of me doing the other thing as well. Um, but no, I, I won't deny it, it was difficult. And it, it is ultimately, ultimately what led me to kind of step back and think, uh, maybe having one employer is good is is enough <laughs> for now, but um, it's but uh, that didn't last long. No, <laughs> it's uh, no. It's, uh, I became my I became several employers of myself, but um, it's uh, it. I think the only thing that kind of made it work was that Arc Daily. Um, many of Arc Daily staff are based actually in the U.S., so the time difference kind of helped. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in some ways, it was actually uh, a lot of fun. Doing more than one thing puts all the other things in perspective, I think. Even working eight hours a day with BDP, Arc Daily became an escape from that and from the stresses of that and vice versa. So I won't deny that it was, it was certainly difficult. But um, so I guess when, you're, when you seek out things that you find interesting, you, you, you'll make it work somehow. And uh, I certainly, certainly don't regret it. Uh, ask me again in 10 years when I'm <laughs> aged about 50 years, I might have a different answer. But uh, <laughs> For now, all good. Yeah, that's funny. So, uh, so let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now. Um, what are some of the projects you mentioned? Uh, you had submitted for a, a contest. What was that? What was that about? That's right. So, uh, the most recent contest, it was uh, the brief was very open. It was an international ideas competition to uh, uh, rejuvenate and reuse a system of uh, disused or abandoned tunnels, uh, which were underneath the residential complex in China. There were a system of evacuation tunnels. I think they were 300 meters long, so they were quite quite substantial piece of infrastructure. And the brief was very simple. Um, how do we uh, transform these neglected spaces into places for people and places that people might use? So I drew a lot on my work from, from university and, uh, in fact, from my writing for Arc Daily, where I became very interested in urban farming and agriculture and the connection between agriculture and urbanism. Uh, if 
the I think the the principal on that really is is Carolyn Steele. So anyone who wants to know about urban farming certainly uh, check out her book uh, Hungry City, and she's done a few TED talks. But I my vision for these tunnels was to essentially create a three hundred meter long farm, this this uh, environment which is kind of alive with production, uh, which moves the means of production for agriculture back into cities, uh, which can hopefully allow us to. Uh, to gain more of an understanding and appreciation of where food comes from. Because if you look at some of the, I won't rattle through all the statistics, but some of them can be quite alarming for the current state of agriculture, where I think we destroy 12 million hectares of rainforest every year to create farmland. Hmm. At the same time, our current farming practices destroy 12 million hectares of farmland. Yeah. So it's, um, and I, the looking at those tunnels and these, this, this abandoned or disused infrastructure I guess it drew it drew all these parallels in my mind of cities are very slowly being rotted, almost being rotted out from the core. Uh, we see more and more industries which used to take place in cities uh, disappearing, whether that's uh, retail, which I think is quite quite famous now for for having struggles in city centres, and also increasingly now we're seeing with, with offices and with work, and that's not to mention all all different transport industries, energy infrastructures, and uh, water infrastructures and, and transport infrastructures which are they're they're becoming past their sell-by date and the question of what do we use these spaces in the cities for i think is extremely exciting because we do have all these industries which which could take place like food like energy like uh, all these industries which are currently hidden from view uh, whether that's in a countryside or in a in, in a greenhouse a sea of greenhouses in the netherlands that somehow cities could become places for production again and places to celebrate production and places where living in the city you're it's not it's as if you're not living in the city you're living with with the city mm-hmm. and so that's that's where the inspiration for the uh, for the urban farming came from and i was uh, fortunate enough to uh, to uh, to to win that competition um but it, it did i think gave me a lot of confidence looking at the other entries that a lot of other people also took that line and they they didn't. They didn't try to celebrate these infrastructures as relics, which you know, sometimes that can be appropriate. Instead, they looked at these disused spaces and thought, "How can how can we create an architecture of productivity rather than just an architecture of of preservation or of uh, of, of archive?" Uh, and so, how, how how can we create an active architecture? And I, I think that's always been something which has been underlined in in my work and certainly in a lot of the. Um, a lot of the people that I encountered, at, whether it's Arc Daily or BTP or anywhere. Yeah. And I heard a f- insane stat recently that talked about, you know, population growth. Um, yeah. And when you think, I think it was just 1960, our population was 3 billion uh, just in 1960. And we're what, over just over 7 billion now. Mm-hmm. Just thinking on that trajectory of what population will be like in 2100 for for example yeah we're gonna have to accommodate and provide food for all those people so as our cities get denser you have to creatively think of how do we start to incorporate farming because the pollution of transportation to bring all that food in has to it has to come closer somehow um so how does Mm -hmm. all of that start to fold into one seamless tighter network Absolutely, and um, it's as as you say. I mean, the I think the uh, the trajectory is for global population to reach ten billion. I think by twenty sixty, or I could be wrong on that, but it's uh, ten billion within our lifetime. We'll see a world of ten billion, 
Um, I mean, I think the uh, meat, our demand for meat and dairy is expected to double by 2050, uh, which is alarming because meat and, meat and dairy industry uh, are among the world's largest um, polluters uh, when you look at climate mm -hmm. change. So, so there's a lot of questions that we have to, to face up to, not just because um, we're already overstretched in terms of how we produce food and how, and, and simply our relationship to food is almost non-existent. So there's one question about how do we, uh, not only how do we prepare for uh, a future world and future demands, but how, simply how do we meet the demands of the present? Um, I've, I've always believed that architecture and design and, um, and spatial thinking have a huge role to play in that. And um, it was, it's, it's always heartening to see um, to, when you, I hear these kind of conversations, uh, to hear that I think there's a lot of other people who believe the same thing. So um, I am uh, cautiously optimistic that, uh, that we can, there, there are certainly challenges we can face, but they're, they are challenges we have to face up to. Yeah, definitely. So I want to spend the last couple minutes. I could talk with you for probably an hour or more, <laughs> but uh, let's spend the last few minutes. I wanted to uh, catch your experience as a writer for architecture and sort of give people an insight of how did you get into it? Um, how could someone get into it? And yeah. sort of the ups and downs of that career mm -hmm. path. Sure. Uh, what well, writing and reading, I think, has always been uh, a passion of mine long before I had any sort of inkling to study architecture. And uh, I think when the time came, uh, I had a choice in my mind between studying journalism and studying architecture. Ultimately decided that um, journalism and writing could be woven into an architecture degree uh, much easier than, than vice versa. I think looking back, it was the right decision. But um, I've, I guess with the writing, like I, didn't, I never set out uh, when I started architecture with, with the goal of writing for, for Art Daily or, or anything like that. I think I was just looking for any excuse and any, any opportunity to, to write and to utilize the, the skills I felt I had that, uh, that I think often architects do themselves down and say that there aren't a lot of good architectural writers, which I, I, don't, I don't know if that's true. But um, I mean, my advice for anyone who wants to follow a similar path is to is, is kind of the same thing. Uh, use any opportunity you can to to write about what you're passionate about. And there's a lot of websites and journals and publications which are always crying out for um, for for people. I know Arc Daily particularly does their internship program. I know other design websites do do internships, paid internships, um, and are always looking for positions. And um, so I, I think my biggest advice is don't be afraid to approach uh, approach the the big leagues and to and don't don't be afraid of someone saying no and don't be afraid to keep trying um, and also to recognize that as as I think has been the theme of this talk that uh, architecture connects with so many other industries and that uh, any anyone from an architectural background interested in writing shouldn't confine themselves to writing for an architectural publication. You see so many, uh, whether it's National Geographic or The Guardian or, uh, or so many other journals that, uh, that you see stories with an architectural spin, which, um, which garner huge, huge intrigue from the general public. So, so I think my advice would be, look, you've, you've nothing to lose. Um, uh, if you like writing, write, uh, set up a blog and, and pitch your writing to anyone who you think will, will listen or, or read, I suppose. And, I'll, and of course, I'm always, I, I mean, I, I get emails every so often, people looking for advice. And I'm always happy to, I'm always happy to give advice to anyone as well who, you know, who wants to learn more about, and uh, who wants to learn more about writing or how I got into writing or anything. Just always feel free to, to, to find me somehow. <laughs> Great. 
uh, let's do one last uh, opportunity for you to say anything that you want to get off your mind as a as a last comment for our listeners and or uh, let us know how we can stay in touch with you and follow along with what you're doing. Sure. Um, well, the, to, to get in touch with me, my, uh, me, my Instagram handles is Niall Patrick Walsh and uh, my professional one is architecture words. So architecture underscore words. I'm sure people will find me on LinkedIn fairly easily, even on Arc Daily. I think my email address is on, still on my biography page. And um, I, mean, I guess in terms of a, of a passing, um, a passing thought, I think that these kind of media platforms, I've always been, I've always been very encouraged to see them grow, such as whether it's Spaces Podcast or, or anything else. And uh, particularly one, one of my biggest insights from Arc Daily was the encouragement and en- energy I got from seeing how eager uh, readers, most of whom were architects, how eager they were to read about things that didn't directly relate to their profession. Um, and I'd encourage anyone listening to, to, to reflect and to recognize um, architecture's role in, in, in all these other industries and that all the challenges we face, whether it's healthcare or, or climate or food or, or politics and, and uh, inequality, or and uh, and diversity, all these different things that come into uh, come into the world around us. That as architects, you have a you have a very large voice in those, and you have a background, and you have a certain set of skills and expertise that others don't have, and try to use them uh, for for good, and uh, and to you know continue to engage where you can with with platforms such as this, which which connect like-minded people around the world to continue this kind of conversation about how we can make a better built environment. Yeah. Thank you so much, Niall. And just to clarify for our listeners, Niall is spelled N-I-A-L-L, Patrick Walsh. So thank you so much, Niall. And for our listeners, we will talk again on Tuesday. Thanks. This show is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. You can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star rating and a review on your preferred podcasting app. It helps others find us, and your support is the only way that this show grows. And don't forget to connect with us through our Facebook community, Instagram, and see the random thoughts and articles that we share on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you again for spending some time with us. Talk soon. architecture firm owners and emerging leaders. Get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. 
We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLamey, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.